Welcome to the CEC report for the 11th of October 2019. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is CEC leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Elisa. And on today's show, when the tide disappears before a tsunami, why have global funds pulled out of Australian bank shares? And secondly, Mr. Morrison, is it in our interest to bow to BIS dictates? Now, before we get into today's show, we do have an announcement, Craig. Um, yes. And that is we held an extraordinary general meeting here on Wednesday night. Yes. And we have officially changed the CEC's name as a political party to the Citizens' Party. Yes, or the Australian Citizens' Party, the long version. The Citizens' Party is our abbreviation, yeah. After 31 years, uh, we've changed because this represents, the name represents the fact that we are a party and the other name, our old, older name, did not. And the fact is that you know, our membership uh, is very, very happy about the move because they see our increasing role in Australian politics, particularly mm. around the issue of Glass-Steagall, national banking, the cash ban bill, and a whole raft of other issues. And they want to see, uh, they want to see us move forward more into the political realm. And one of the, one of the not that we're not having a major impact, of course, yeah. but the, the, uh, the, the idea is to, to really make sure that it's clear that we're yeah. a political party that exactly. represents these views. And that name encapsulates yes. really the essence of the fact that we represent uniquely in this country the citizens of this nation and yeah. the common good of those citizens. Yes, and I think it's very important that the word citizens in there, because we've had it in our name all along, we want people to become citizens, to take mm. responsibility for their country and not just be subjects. Yeah, exactly. And then we're not we're not talking about the subjects party here, we're talking about the citizens <laughs> party, which means responsibility on our on our members to really, you know, to do what they're doing now, you know, contact MPs and let them know mm. what it is necessary for the future of our country. And that's really what the powers that be fear the most as we'll go through in the course of the show. So on to our first topic. When the tide disappears before a tsunami, why have global funds pulled out of Australian bank shares? So this is in reference to a study that's been put out by the Copley Fund, which shows that global investors have dropped their investments in Australian banks to the lowest level on record. And this is a trend amongst major global funds um, that were surveyed with a combined value of $1.2 trillion. And it shows that they have decreased their exposure. Well, 91% of them have decreased their exposure to Australian bank shares to zero. <laughs> so they've completely pulled out. Um, and another example is that among seven top brokers, there is not one buy call on ANZ or CBA, and there's various other figures you can see in a report from The Australian on the 9th of October. Uh, they quoted the CEO of Copley, Stephen Holden, who said, regulatory concerns, faltering housing markets and a low interest rate environment has prompted global investors to all but throw in the towel on their Australian bank investments. So this is actually quite a dramatic development. Of course, we saw earlier this year in March that JP Morgan was warning its clients to get out of Australian real estate. Yeah. And last week we had a very important segment on the show where we revealed, uh, as many people suspected, that the so-called pickup in the housing market is absolutely fake. Mm -hmm. There's no basis uh, whatsoever in reality. Now, one of the big questions is in this environment, because the Reserve Bank, as we've seen, have been cutting rates, will they go to quantitative easing is now the big question of discussion. And uh, Goldman Sachs weighed into that. 
uh, they put out modelling saying that the Reserve Bank will be drawn into unconventional policies. Uh, they said that we would either need to go to negative 1% interest rates to get the effect the RBA wants to achieve in terms of inflation targets, which might be unlikely. So they said the alternative is uh, $200 billion Australian dollars worth of quantitative easing. And the, the head of, or just one yeah. uh, last thing, the head of ANZ weighed in as well, uh, Shane Elliott, and he's actually called for a summit to discuss quantitative easing, the whole negative um, interest rate environment and various other measures. So he wants to bring in uh, the regulators, the Treasury, the Reserve Bank and the big four banks um, because they are losing control and they're very worried. Well, look, the elephant in the room, Elisa, is that we're looking at a global financial crisis, Mark II, which is much, much larger than the last one. They can't control the, the, their monetary policy of the last 40 years, so they're looking at measures that are absolutely crazy. Mm. I mean, the going to negative interest rates, what effect is that going to have on the huge overseas borrowings of the Australian banking system? What is that going to mean for the housing bubble, uh, bubble where you know 60% of the bank's assets are tied up? On, so they're playing with fire. This could bring the entire system down and very, very quickly. So look, the solution for this is to look outside the box and what we're proposing. You've got to have Glass-Steagall, which is bank separation, protect the normal banking system, the regular commercial banking system that we need, and all the investment, merchant banking, and all the speculative aspects of banking that have brought us to this problem mm. with derivatives, you know, at uh, 47 trillion national capital value. I mean, this is where the problem lies in all the speculation. But the political will at the moment may exist in some layers of the population, but it's not in the parliament. So, the, 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 you know, the, the idea of negative interest rates, printing money, mm -hmm. which will effectively devalue our dollar, you know, it's going to create all sorts of problems mm. because it's not the solution. These are all of the mechanisms that brought us to this point, as you indicated. Yeah. Um, and look, right now, any shock, the slightest shock, could crash the entire global system. Um, the China, yeah. US trade mm. discussions, which are coming up again, Brexit, uh, a Mideast oil shock. There was an extraordinary uh, September interview that the Saudi Arabian Crown Prince Mohammed uh, bin Salman gave to the US 60 Minutes show and he warned of a total collapse of the global economy if war were to break out in the Middle East over, say, Iran. And he said, don't do it, don't go there. Um, the repo crisis that we've just seen, this um, has part, the negative interest rates and so forth have played into this in a major way. Of course, just to recap for people who aren't aware, um, since 17th of September, the US Fed has had to put extra loans forward every night on overnight lending markets to make up for a deficit of available reserves that banks are willing to lend to each other. Yeah. So the internal uh, lending broke down um, and what the Fed has announced this week is that they will extend uh, those loans of up to $75 billion a day as much as is taken up by the banks each day. They will continue doing that through at least the 4th of November and also putting in additional two-week loans as at regular intervals. And this is a market, the repo market, where, of course, it's paid back every day, so this is not cumulative bailouts, but um, a trillion US dollars flow through, flows through these markets mm. every single day. So the implications when, because you've got a very, very high concentration in a small handful of banks, mainly the big four American banks, but then there's 24 American banks that can take these loans at the Fed window. 
And if one of them suddenly stops lending, there's a huge impact that that makes. Um, JP Morgan Chase has been identified as one of the problematic um, banks here. Of course, they are very, very big, which means they have to keep large capital requirements. There's been talk about the fact that there were potentially large deposits from corporate or demands for deposits from their corporate depositors. Um, they have reduced the amount of reserves they keep at the US Federal Reserve by 57% in a year. Um, one of the other big factors is that with negative interest rates, these banks are being cut back in terms of the income they're receiving from interest. Yeah. So they're being forced more and more into get riskier and riskier. Derivative speculation, this is one of the reasons we're seeing here in Australia, the big increase and in elsewhere in derivative speculation. Um, now they claim that they've got the reserves, like for instance, one top 10, one of the top bankers in the top 10 US banks told the Financial Times recently, we have plenty of liquidity. We are just choosing not to lend it out overnight to hedge funds. <laughs> but see, when they lend it out overnight at this crunch point in September, they could have been earning up to 10% mm. On, on that lending. So why weren't they doing it? So you've got obviously one or more major too big to fail banks in trouble. The, uh, one of the other indicators of this is that there's been 68,000 layoffs, and we'll put up a chart of this, which was actually produced before uh, another 10,000 layoffs were announced by HSBC. So. Um, they show 58,000, there's uh, over 68,000 announced, including uh, 18,000 from Deutsche Bank, um, more from Citigroup. And this is putting everything on edge. In fact, the, um, the Fed, Jerome Powell, gave a speech in Denver this week where he talked about a new or foreshadowed a new realm of quantitative easing. And he claimed, oh, this is not quantitative easing, but he talked about how the Fed will soon begin increasing our securities holdings mm -hmm. to maintain an appropriate level of reserves. So it's exactly what it is. Um, figures have just come out from the Levy Economics Institute showing that the real total figure for the bailout at the point of the global financial crisis or through the course of that was 29 trillion, not the 16 trillion, which is officially um, stated. So if that was 29 trillion, our banks have doubled or yep. more in sight. So the two big to fail banks have got much greater speculation. Look at the debt figures that have blown out since then. What would a new bailout require, Craig? Is it even possible? Well, it's not, not, on, this, not, not on that model. Lisa, it's just not possible. I mean, the debt is so huge, a large amount of it has to be written off. The fact is that most of the uh, banks are bankrupt, as we know. You could look at, the, look at the housing collapse where their assets are all tied up in mortgages. The solution lies in a reorganisation of how the financial system mm. works, which is why we come back to the need for Glass-Steagall, i.e. bank separation, protect the normal banking system, but then go with a national bank which is a bank that can then issue credit into the economy, into actual functioning parts of the economy, like productive areas of the economy. So there's, there's a bit, and then also we've got other legislations necessary to look at the audit, audit of the banks, I think we're gonna go into in the next segment. Yeah. And, you know, they, and uh, these are the sorts of policies that are absolutely necessary in our country, but also globally. Mm. And there's more and more moves for this sort of thing. Because other people realize, look, this system's finished. Mm. Right, and that, if it, it collapses in an uh, you know in a disorganised way, 
The problem is there's trust goes out the window as it's already happening on these inter overnight lending rates. Yeah. People don't trust each other and the entire system is just not going to function. Mm. It's not functioning now, but yet that trust, you know, that sort of widespread lack of trust, which happened in the first GFC, that this overnight lending capacity between banks became completely shut down. In fact, trade shut down because you know people couldn't trust whether the banks were actually going to be opening the next day. Yeah. And once you get into that sort of situation, Right, it can go out of control, and it's already out of control, but it can go out of control very, very fast. That's, so that's why right. government has to step in with a very strong uh, uh, program mm. of regulating the banks yep. and so forth. No, that's right. So there's life and death consequences of what's coming up, and we have to have the policies spelled out. So yep. we'll be right back after a quick break to discuss our solutions. Welcome back to the CEC report where we're discussing why major investment firms globally have started pulling out of Australian bank shares. Um, so, you know, they know there's something big going on here as yeah. well. Um, you know, the environment that we're in, there are obviously a lot of people that are beginning to think twice about what's really going on and what are the solutions. And we've just had another uh, top banker putting out the call for the bit too big to fail banks to be broken up and that's Joseph Healy who's a former NAB managing director and former ANZ executive and this comes in the wake of various top level people from Don Argus to um, John Dalson uh, to people like even Alan Fells and Rod Sims from the Australian Consumer Competition Council that are beginning to move in this direction of talking about breaking up the banks. Um, what Healy said, and he's written a book called Breaking the Banks, What Went Wrong with Australian Banking, is that he's explicitly said, look, the Australian banks are too powerful. They need to be broken up. They are basically extracting mammoth rents from the economy, but at the first sign of trouble, they're bailed out by taxpayer money. Regulators, he said, need to be able to force actual competition in banking, and they can't at the present. And he went after the what is known as financialization of the economy, which is a decoupling of the financial economy from the real economy, and specified that banks have basically moved away from what the traditional role of banking was, which is what we've been saying a, a, a lot, constantly. Yeah. Speculation, in effect. Well, that's right. Money for the sake of money, making money on profits. money. Just profits coming from you know, you're trading in money, in effect. And because they're not producing anything, no, that's it's not... based on looting of the real economy. When you get quantitative easy and they just print more money, mm. right? that's why the whole thing gets becomes to be devalued. Yeah, and but when they blow out as a result of this risky activity, it's the people that are going to lose out, including potentially even if you're not a speculator mm. or a shareholder, because as we've shown with um, the Bank for International Settlements policy of bail-in, um, in Australia there are hybrid bonds that can be confiscated to recapitalise a bank, but there's also a window uh, under certain changes that can be made, and APRA has certain emergency powers to do almost anything in the mm. context of a crash, mm. uh, that even deposits could potentially be confiscated, and we are going to be introducing um, via other parties into the parliament legislation to explicitly exclude uh, deposits. deposits from such confiscations. But these are the sorts of things that can happen when the banks blow because of this rampant speculation that's going on. And I wanted to also mention um, the ACCC 
has also been demanding uh, an investigation into competition in banking and Labor has endorsed that call. Um, so that's also important. There are more and more of these calls. I mean, given that we already had a Royal Commission, you would think, oh, it's all dealt with. But everyone knows nothing has really been dealt with, ultimately. Uh, and the problem is, Elisa, the economic literacy of the members of Parliament is so poor that they don't understand the magnitude of the crisis that's, that's besetting us. Mm -hmm. And it's a political question because, as I said, we need what you're talking about breaking up the banks and what these bankers are talking about is the Glass-Steagall-type legislation, which, as you said, was in the parliament, it's going to be reintroduced in the parliament at some point. Um, it, it lapsed because of the election and so forth. But this amendment you're talking about, that's a very, very important part where, you know, back in uh, February of 2014, uh, um, the 14th of February last year, 2018, you know, there's the, the, the government raced this amendment, through, this law through the Parliament, giving APRA all these extra powers, and which included the potential for bailing in, taking people's deposits. We were organising for, uh, for One Nation at that point to put in an amendment, which is the same amendment that's going to go up again, in order to exclude deposits. But the Liberal Party government did the dirty, mm. did a you know, very sneaky uh, manoeuvre, and they passed that legislation without even One Nation knowing, actually, mm. at the point. So the question is, why would the Liberal Party not want to clarify the fact that deposits would be excluded? Mm. And we're about to find out why. Yeah. Now, the other way that people are being trapped into banks at the point of a crash is the cash ban, which yeah. no doubt you all know about, um, because we've been harping on about it every <laughs> single CEC report. But 15th of November is your deadline to put in a submission to the cash ban inquiry, which we forced the Labor Party to throw it into in the Economic Senate Legislation Committee. Also for any activists, you can put in a submission to the um, inquiry into the big four audit firms, EMY, Deloitte, PwC and KPMG. Um, you can look at our press release from, the, uh, from Tuesday on this and also a show who audits the auditors, which Robert Barwick did on Martin North's DFA channel for more information on that. But by the 28th of October, you can put in a submission slamming the fact that you have these big four auditors um, that are determining most of Australia's policies, in fact, uh, and they get away with murder. And they're the ones that are fostering the real black economy uh, in terms of the biggest corporations that are not paying tax mm and the interaction between government and these four firms, uh, including that this is where the big four accounting firms get most of their money, and we'll put up a chart showing that, um, almost half of it coming from the Department of Defence is absolutely extraordinary. But we have to stop again for a quick break and we'll yep. change the topic right after this. Welcome back to the CEC Report. We're now discussing Mr Morrison. Is it in our interest to bow to BIS dictates? I'll just add firstly that for more information, because we always run out of time, um, call in if you haven't already for a complimentary copy of our weekly newsletter, the Australian Alert Service, where you can get all the backup information. Um, so Scott Morrison, the Prime Minister, gave a speech at the Lowy Institute on the 3rd of October, which we want to talk about now, and it was titled In Our Interests. Uh, and of course, it was widely acknowledged as having echoed Trump's, Donald Trump's 22-second speech at the United Nations, where he said, the future does not belong to globalists, the future belongs to patriots. Um, Morrison himself had spoken at the UN meeting, and he was a 
attacking various critics of our stance on climate change. So there's certain things that they're saying or demanding our independence on, but as we'll talk about the certain things that they are not demanding our independence on, which are more important. So Morrison talked about what he called a new variant of globalism that seeks to elevate global institutions above the authority of nation states to direct national policies. Sounds similar to what we've yeah. been talking about with the banks, right? Yeah. Um, but he also defended a certain global institution or alliance underpinned by common values and led by the United States, which binds together the liberal democracies of the Western world. So, you know, the Anglo-American influence that we're always kowtowing to is what he defended. And on the other hand, he said, we've entered a new era of strategic competition. He talked about the direct challenge of competing worldviews and he talked about the threat of regional hegemony. These are all allusions to China rising in the world. Uh, but more importantly, he said, we should avoid any reflex towards a negative globalism that coercively seeks to impose a mandate from an often ill-defined borderless global community and worse still, an unaccountable internationalist bureaucracy. Keep that phrase in mind. Yeah. Yeah. The next day, he added, we won't be copying from any global organisation or institution any instructions or directions that are at odds with our national interest and with any presumption that somehow some global agenda is bigger than Australia. Well, that's what's been happening the last 10 years or 20 years. At least you've got the Bank of International Settlements forcing you know, uh, the idea of bail-in onto the Australian banking system, where we are actually in lockstep with a lot of these internationalist policies. So, I mean, Morrison's you know, just talking through his hat here. Exactly. And the IMF even came in on top of the BIS demands earlier this year and exactly. said, sorry, your bail-in law is not extensive enough. You have to go the whole hog and be able to actually take deposits um, you know, in a much more straightforward way. But they even said that you have to make it so that no um, parliamentary influence can interfere in APRA conducting such a bail-in procedure. So, yeah. you know, our question to Scott Morrison is, and because he, he actually announced that he'd ordered the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade uh, to conduct a comprehensive audit of global institutions and rulemaking processes where we have the greatest stake. Well, is he going to include the BIS? Is he going to include the IMF? Um, you know, is he actually going to include the big four well, or the big banks? Well, I've got to say here, Lisa, we've got legislation you know, being finalised for a national bank, a bank that's got the Australian interests right, firm and centre of the you know, of the, of the nation's interests, mm. of people's interests. Is that going to be supported by the Bank of International Settlements? Mm. Of course not. This is, the, this is a deadly fight, but this is, this is the money powers we used to we talk about in our publications. And look, that's the proof. Yeah. If, if we had a national bank today, it would be a completely different economy, a different nation. And by the way, in his speech, Morrison did say we can never answer to a higher authority than the people of Australia. Well, if he really believes that, Give he's about to bank. find out what that's all about. And this is our cue. Make sure your Member of Parliament knows how you feel about the cash ban, how you feel about the Big Four auditors, how you feel about the Bank for International Settlements and their bail-in legislation. Yeah. Ring up and give them the whole kit and caboodle um, because they deserve it and they need to be hearing this and get other people to do the same. 
um, because we can't stand for the sorts of policies that they're about to usher in with quantitative easing, negative interest rates, which are going to make the whole mess much, much worse. That's right. And contact us to get involved and to find out more because, again, we've run out of time. Thank you, Craig. Yeah, thanks, Lisa. Thanks for joining us. Thank you.